Hi, this is Tom Field with Information Security Media Group. I'm talking today with Matt Bishop, professor with the Department of Computer Science with University of California, Davis. And we're going to be talking about his department, the work that he's doing, and then some options for people that either are starting careers or looking to make a mid-career move. Matt, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. Matt, tell us a little bit about yourself and about the work you've been doing at UC Davis. Um, I uh, graduated from Purdue and then uh, went to NASA Ames uh, to the Research Institute for Advanced Computer Science for a couple of years, then taught at Dartmouth for six years and then came out to um, Davis. I'm a professor in the Computer Science Department and one of the co-directors of the Computer Security Laboratory here. And I've been working um, in computer security since, I guess, 1979, um, when I was a grad st uh, student. The um, What's always interested me is why we can't build computer systems that aren't vulnerable. You know, why are there problems? Um, we've had computers now since the 40s or 50s, and yet we still can't build it. We still can't build a good one or one that's secure. So I got into interested in vulnerability analysis when I was a grad student, and I'm still continuing to do that. And it's taken me down some interesting paths. Um, perhaps the two that, at least to me, are most interesting are, first of all, when you gather data to analyze vulnerability, sometimes you come across very sensitive data like names or passwords or things like that. So how do you eliminate the sensitive data and yet retain enough information to be able to analyze the vulnerability or figure out how the attack worked and so forth? That's called data sanitization, and that's an area that I've been doing quite a bit of work in, where you're trying to balance the needs of security, um, the need to do the analysis, with the need to keep people's information private, because there are some things that simply should not be available to um, anyone other than the, pe the uh, people who need to know them. It's a very, very difficult problem, um, because there's um, there there are two aspects to it. The first is, for example, eliminating um, syntax. Uh, you know, if you see the word login followed by a semicolon or followed by a colon, the next thing is probably a username, so it's easy to remove that. But then there are issues of semantics. For example, um, in California, if you know the net, um, the uh, zip code, the number of children, and income to within some fig some range, I don't remember the exact range, you can uniquely identify about 50 to 70 percent of the people in the state. So this is where information is contained in the um, content, and that's a lot harder to to figure out. So that's one area I've been looking at. The second one I got involved with when um, some friends of mine asked me to help them look at a voting machine. And basically their job was to see how hard it would be to um, rig the voting machine to report uh, the results that somebody wanted. This was done in a laboratory. It was not done during an election, of course. It took us about five minutes to rig the machine, then 30 minutes to change the results of what would have been the election. And through that, some other people pulled me into other adventures. And so I've been spending a lot of time doing work with electronic voting and the whole idea of voting machines and the like. 
And it turns out that there's an aspect that until recently most people haven't been looking at, which is not the reliability of the voting machine itself or the security of the voting machine itself, but instead the security of the voting machine within the context of the election. In other words, an election is a process. And certain things you do during that process will reveal problems in the counting or problems in the machine. But if you just look at the machine itself, something may look fine when it's not, and something may look bad when it's really okay because of the surrounding procedures and so forth. So we've been trying to an build a model, um, we've been trying to analyze that process so we can better understand what the requirements for voting machines are. Interesting stuff. Let me ask you a little bit about some of your students. Who do you find entering your program right now, and what do their career interests seem to be? Um, what's really neat is we find an incredible variety of people entering the program. Um, one of my best grad students, for example, was a double major, computer science and creative writing. And uh, that's great because very often people have the idea, if you want to do computer security, which is the main area I work in, um, you have to be highly technical. In fact, the opposite is true. You need to understand the technical stuff you can learn. But what's often much harder for people to learn is how a society functions, how systems function, um, systems of people and policies and so forth function, and how the machine fits into all of this. And that's a critical component of security. The other thing I've found is that very often when you do things like creative writing or languages or the like, um, you come up with interesting but different ways to look at problems. And a lot of computer security is questioning the assumptions on which your systems are built. People who have done a lot of um, creative work are very good at finding these assumptions and saying, what happens if that's wrong? And more often than not, what happens if that's wrong is someone is able to break in. So we get a fairly broad spectrum of students, which is wonderful. And their career interests, um, the ones I have the most contact with, typically want to go either work for companies in industry or work in academia or teach and do research. Um, but a few of our students have gone into government, and some of them have been incredi done incredibly good work there as well. Well, that was going to be my follow-up question, is where are you placing some of these you know, really bright, sort of diversely talented students? Um, a lot of them go to commercial firms, and we're fairly near Silicon Valley, so a lot of people go there. Uh, for example, we have some people, one of my students is working at Google. In fact, a couple of them are working at Google. Um, some of them work for Sun Microsystems, um, all sorts of other companies. Uh, some go to startups. And a couple have uh, gone on to careers as uh, professors, and some have, uh, in fact, gone into government. Um, for example, one of our best, one, one of our outstanding graduates now works for the National Institute for Science and Technology. Uh, another one who graduated about the time I came in now works um, at uh, one of the national labs. Um, we have a, another one of my students is now working for Sandia. So uh, people basically come out of here able to go pretty much wherever there's interest in security, and that interest is growing. That's going to be really gratifying for you to see. It's nice. Um, what I'm, what, what's really gratifying is that, as far as I'm aware, none of the students have taken the jobs because they desperately needed a job. All the students who took the jobs basically said, you know, this is a really good fit. I really want to do this. 
And I think that's what gives me the most satisfaction, knowing that the students are doing what they want to do rather than what students else thinks they should do or um, what they have to do out of desperation. Now, you spoke about some of the initiatives you're working on, the vulnerability analysis, the, the electronic mm-hmm. voting. What are some of the key initiatives that you're working on now that would be of particular interest to financial institutions? Uh, one of probably, well, um, I don't know whether or not electronic voting would be of interest because it can be used for um, corporations and stockholder meetings and things like that. Probably the one that's of the most interest to financial institutions is the insider problem. Um, this, the normal view of this is, well, somebody you trust does something nasty, such as a bank president wiring ten million dollars to an unnum- unnamed or unnumbered, or sorry, a numbered Swiss account, then then leaving, and the controls that are in place um, either malfunction or aren't appropriate to prevent someone that highly trusted from absconding. Uh, this problem exists not just throughout computers, but throughout society. Because when you put trust in something, you're expecting um, the person to honor that trust. What happens when it's breached? Well, uh, if you read the literature, it turns out this problem, at least in the computer science sense, is not well defined. Because each person, each paper uses its own slightly different definition. And in fact, we were amused to find one paper in which there were two different definitions used in the paper. So what we're trying to do is um, build, is first develop a under, better understanding of how the insider comes about. What gives the person the ability to be an insider? Not in a psychological sense, but in a technical sense. And secondly, um, how can we look at a particular institution and give them a method for figuring out, okay, of all these people, who, do, who are the insiders? Or rather, um, who would have accessed not just them themselves, but through them? And I'll get explain that in a moment. And then what are the risks? So in other words, we're trying to come up with some way to quantify um, the measure of the problem. Now, why did, what do they mean by through them? Well, um, let's say, uh, for example, you work in, a, in, a, in an institution, and only trusted people have access to the system. Um, so, you know, you go home every night, the janitor comes in and sweeps up. Well, the janitor has access to that computer, unless it's very well protected. So the janitor now is a point of concern. Now let's say you're working at home, and you're logging into your system, you're going in over a virtual private network, so it's very secure and the like. And the refrigerator repairman comes in, and it works on your refrigerator, and notices you typing your password. That refrigerator repairman may now have access to your system. Or if you have a uh, teenage child who has not yet learned the meaning of the word no or limits, and they see you doing this, they may have now have access. So those are other things you have to factor into um, consideration. And most of the work we've seen with the insider problem either deals with, well, um, you're already on the computer. How do you uh, um, uh, protect against that, which is part of what we're interested in. Um, Or the uh, they say, what here's this person's job. What can this person do as an insider based on the job? The problem is job is not necessarily enough. There may be other factors as well. So we're looking at what we're doing work in this, in this particular area. Okay. 
Now, I know you've got a lot of business partnerships, and one of the, the, the key issues for academic institutions is you know, what are businesses asking for from, from the academic institutions? What do you find the expectations are now for new security professionals entering the field? Um, for, new, for people who are graduating and going into um, careers in security, uh, it depends exactly on what they're, do, on what they're doing. They, uh, the thing that most companies seem to expect is the, is a good understanding of how things work and what security is and how to apply it to the company's particular problems. A very good example of this is programming. Um, there is a serious problem with what is known as, uh, secure coding, uh, which is a misnomer, by the way. Um, no program can ever be made secure because there's just too, too many things it relies on. But on the other hand, we see things like buffer overflows and race conditions, which are obvious problems. And so companies are really concerned about people not but right, being able to see the, know what those things are and not write programs that have those vulnerabilities. So we're seeing a lot of interest in how do you teach this stuff and how do you graduate people who won't make these mistakes. Uh, most companies are more than willing to train people on their particular um, equipment or in their particular setup. I've seen a few that tell me your students should walk out and walk into a job and we should not have to do any training, but my experience is that's number one, unrealistic, and number two, um, most companies realize their setup is unique enough that people will have to learn on the job. So basically, um, what they want are people who will act professionally and who know their, who know security in general and who can very easily apply it to um, unique and novel situations. That makes sense. Matt, one last question for you. In terms of somebody that would be getting into information security now, whether as a first career or as a mid-career move, what advice would you give to them? Let me give you a multi-part answer. The first one, if you're coming into it as a, if you're interested in getting into it as a first career, is don't just become technical. Focus on the technical stuff, but also focus on its role in a larger environment. For example, um, you learn technically, here is a policy, how do you implement it? But what you don't learn is, well, is that the right policy? And a lot of times companies have, for example, clamped down so tightly that the people who are doing the work simply can't do it. So what do they do? They start doing it on other systems or find other ways around your security. And all of a sudden, you've got a major security problem. I've seen uh, security um, groups uh, within companies basically you might call them the abominable no people because they keep saying no. And that's very bad. What you say instead is, well, if you do that, here are the dangers that you're going to create. So we don't want to do that. Tell me what you're trying to do, and we'll see if we can figure out some way to get to help you do it. So in other words, security is not just technological. It's also very much a people-oriented thing. So if you're trying to get into it as a first career, um, do the technology, but also do humanities, do history, do sociology, or whatever whatever interests you about people, because that will help build your understanding and ability to work with people. As a mid-career move, um, one thing you might do is look at where your strengths are. And the neat thing about computer security is it cuts across all boundaries of computer science. Um, we 
one of the thrills that I've had is I've worked in formal, very formal mathematics. I've also worked in very applied systems, as in how did this break and how do we figure out how to fix it, where you dive into the network traffic and look and see what's going on. So look to what your strengths are and then see how you might apply them to security. And if you don't know about security at all, there are a lot of good books out there. I'd recommend um, some of the um, introductory ones. Uh, and as you go on, there are a lot of uh, good textbooks. Um, I've got one out which is uh, intended for college graduate students. Ross Anderson has a wonderful one on, soft, on security engineering. Um, Charles and uh, Sherry Flieger also have a, a good one on security in general. Um, look through them and maybe and see how that information applies to you or how you can apply that information to what you do. Very good, Matt. I appreciate your insight and your, um, your expertise this afternoon. You've offered us a lot and, and we're very grateful for it. Thank you. We've been talking with Matt Bishop, professor in the Department of Computer Science with the University of California, Davis. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tom Field. Thank you very much.